Hello and welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. We're recording this episode on Thursday, April 2nd. Today, picking up on last week's conversation on the Jewish community's reaction and responses to the COVID-19 crisis, and in particular questions of Jewish wealth, Jewish philanthropy, and, and Jewish urgencies right now, we'll be talking about uh, problems of structural poverty here in the New York area and around the country and the ways in which those issues are exacerbating the crisis. Today, the unemployment numbers came out and set a record for the second week in a row, I think 6.6 million new unemployed cases. Uh, additionally, a uh, number of newspapers in the New York area have been reporting uh, a correlation between the maps of poverty in the New York City area and the concentrated areas of infections due to coronavirus. Uh, and it's hard not to separate the relationship between uh, the obligations and responsibilities that fall on the poorest in our society, the vulnerabilities that overpopulation, overcrowding, uh, and the necessity of continuing to work are exacerbating the, the problems that we see. For today's discussion, I'm joined by two friends and, and major thinkers and activists in the arena of Jewish poverty, Rabbi David Rosen, Executive Director of Hebrew Free Loan, and Rabbi Joanna Samuels, Executive Director of the Educational Alliance's Manny Cantor Center. So let's start to explore this question. And I, I, I do want to pick up on you know, on one hand, the Jewish community is having a conversation around what happens to our network of agencies and institutions that foster Jewish life, synagogues, JCCs, Hillel's, etc. But there is an at least equally important, if not perhaps uh, much more urgent conversation about not just what happens for the Jewish community's institutions, but what happens for the Jewish community's responsibility to America, American democracy, and American poor, whether they're not in our Jewish communities or not. Let's start with you, David. I, I know that you've been in the midst of um, of not just your regular work, which deals with questions of poverty, but um, a particular pivot into this moment. So tell us, first of all, what you're seeing, what you're experiencing, and how you feel your work has changed uh, in light of this crisis. Sure. At the Hebrew Free Loan Society, our primary mission is to help people stabilize their financial lives and take advantage of financial opportunities that will help them not constantly be buffeted about by the instability that most lower income people experience in their in their working lives and in trying to manage for themselves and their families. So we have a set of safety net loans, the general needs loans that are really being used mostly by people who have three jobs instead of one steady paycheck. They are assigned hours, which they don't really control. And so they can't know how much they're earning from week to week, or they work in the gig economy. And so they are trying to manage and plan in a high volatility situation for their income. And then of course, their expenses, sometimes uh, you have an unexpected expense. And most of us will manage that by tapping our savings, but lower income people very frequently don't have much savings. They do save a lot, but then they tap those savings a lot. And so people have a couple of hundred dollars if they're lucky in their bank account. And if your car breaks down, it's a thousand dollar problem and you need to get to work. You need some way to manage that. And so we offer 0% interest loans that give people an opportunity to bridge those issues that come up and they come up very frequently and to do it in a way that doesn't cost them a lot of money. We are 
now in a situation where it's not just a bump in the road, it isn't a, an unexpected expense or a temporary drop in income, but you know, 10 million people in the last two weeks just filed for unemployment. And so the ability for people to bring money in is severely compromised and they are still faced with expenses. Um, almost 70% of New Yorkers rent and the state of New York put in a three-month forbearance um, on mortgage payments for people who own their homes, which is great for the 30 to 40% of people in New York who own homes. But most people rent, and their landlords are expecting to rent. April 1st was yesterday. And so a lot of people, I think, just had to choose what to do. There is, in a lot of states, there's a, a moratorium on eviction, so people aren't get, immediately going to get thrown out of their apartment. But they do now owe rent that they don't know how they're going to pay. And so what we've done in the immediate term is we've just stopped collecting payments on people who have loans from the Hebrew Free Loan Society in order to keep money in their bank accounts so that it can manage in the immediate term. And that's a big hit to us. We depend upon payments on our current loans to make new loans, but we would rather take the hit um, and are going to try to find ways to take a hit and not have that land on our borrowers. And we also are making a lot of new loans as well because people are in need of immediate cash before government programs kick in. And so the combination is something for our, our individual and family borrowers that we, we're, we're trying to manage. We hope we'll be able to manage it for several more months because it definitely looks like the situation is going to extend for several more months. Yeah, so Joanna, why don't you give us your lens on how you're seeing this as a kind of hybrid organization in the Jewish community, one that both serves people in poverty and under-resourced neighborhood, but also kind of belongs to the Jewish, Jewish identity economy as well, as a kind of a JCC that is also a social services agency in New York. Yeah, thank you so much. I think, first of all, I want to talk about what we're hearing from um, lower income New Yorkers whom we serve. Just as a background, we serve people across the income spectrum of New York City, which ranges from people who live below the poverty line. The federal poverty line is about $25,000 a year of income for a family of four living in New York City, a fact that I just can't say enough times. Um, and the thing that I always say with it is that those parents love their children just as much as anyone else loves their children and want the best for them in the same way that anyone else wants the best for their children. And if you could imagine wanting everything you want for your children and facing the barrier of $25,000 a year of income or less in New York City, that introduces you to the level of stress and anxiety that is a reality um, in the homes of lower income New Yorkers, right? So everything that David just said about like, what happens when you have a cavity and you need to, you know, spend $300 or $600 to fill it? Or what happens when your car breaks down? Or what happens when you have an unexpected expense related to your child's education? All of those things exist. And right now they exist in the stressful situation of home quarantine, for many of our families, they live doubled and tripled up in small apartments um, on the Lower East Side and in Chinatown. And so I'm sitting with what that looks like day to day, what it looks like to be in an apartment that maybe has 12 people in it that is an apartment probably meant for two people 
where you don't have reliable internet and you can't go outdoors in the way that you want to, and where the generations are mixed and mingled in a way that has beautiful qualities to it, but in this case actually may very well be a death sentence um, for the older people who live in those apartments. So I'm thinking about all of that, and I'm thinking about the fact that the funding sources for those anti-poverty programs, which in my case come from the New York City government and also from the federal government, are right now secure. And so I feel very grateful for my own small experience of what it means to have a functioning government safety net, right? And at the same time, the work that we do as a JCC, which involves, you know, fee-for-service art classes and some families who pay tuition and a fitness center, that has collapsed before our eyes. And I have no sense of when that will come back. I'm working on two fronts, figuring out what are the resources and supports that we can deliver to the families and um, individuals who are most vulnerable while still wanting to think about the business reality of wanting to keep my staff employed who rely on fee-based or tuition-based income. Something that David said at the end of um, his comment really reinforces something that feels true and that we need to sit with, which is that our organizations, some of us right now are living the same way that most Americans live, which is we don't know actually how we're going to make it into the future, right? That all of a sudden the security net of donations or tuition or whatever is gone. And we as organizations are very much like most Americans, which is that we're one paycheck away um, from real disaster. And I, I hope that there isn't real disaster, but I do hope that for all of us who are in the role of ensuring and fighting for the health of our organizations and for the continued employment of our staff, that we internalize very deeply what this vulnerability feels like. Because that actually is what's going to help us advocate for the majority of Americans who are one health crisis away from disaster. We are all right now one health crisis away from disaster. I hear that, but I I wonder whether there's a little bit of a deception built into that, Joanna, because it is true for for many organizations on the landscape, many small businesses, many Jewish organizations, let's take that, uh, because that's oftentimes a theme of of this podcast, um, are one membership cycle or one philanthropic donor away from collapse. And at the same time, we are connected to an industry that sees itself as an industry and actually provides sources of, um, of support uh, and resources to our industry that are simply not available to the majority of Americans. Just in the past two weeks, the Jewish community has been incredibly impressive in its collective mobilization around the $300 billion Small Business Administration loan program that's available to nonprofit organizations with fewer than 500 employees. And objectively, this is a good thing because it keeps a lot of people employed. And subjectively, it's a good thing because it's going to prevent the collapse of the Jewish nonprofit economy, which is good not just because it employs people, but also because many of us uh, rely on it and depend upon it for all sorts of things that are not physical needs, but are um, important spiritual, psychological self-actualization needs. What you're saying is that we should be focused on noticing that we're one paycheck away as organizations, but there isn't 
the same mobilization structure of the same type of resources available to the majority of Americans. The majority of Americans who are under the poverty line are going to get a single, maybe $1,200 check from the federal government, which may help them for one month, if that, and not what is available to organizations like mine and maybe yours, which is payroll for a couple of months. On one hand, you're, you're, you're trying to get us to empathize with this problem through the prison of our own experience, but I wonder whether it actually creates a deception of thinking that through that empathy, we can really understand what people are suffering when in fact, it allows us to feel the good side of empathy with someone else's problems without actually being able to identify with their pain. I really appreciate that point. And it's funny, I this morning was just in a conversation with a colleague of mine about the number of small businesses in Chinatown that probably haven't even heard of the SBA loan program. And what does that mean in terms of equity? And I would say my own organization doesn't qualify. We're over 500 employees. And in many ways, we are the best situated to receive that money and be able to continue at full tilt, and we will not be able to receive it. So I I take your point. We don't have a lot of tools in the toolbox right now to actually correct the structural injustice that is alive and well in this country every day, every day before this took hold, and certainly in the present day. And I think that, I think a portal into productive action is empathy. That's why I, I am a rabbi and not, you know, a politician. Although I do think that our governor has been amazing, actually, at speaking the language of, of empathy. You know, for the Jewish organizations that are so busy right now creating content and sort of affirming their value and all of that, I think what they could be doing is instead of like promoting their brand on Zoom, which is sort of exhausting at this point, what they could be doing is trying to get people to be more self-reflective about the fears that we're all experiencing right now and the, ima- the, the kind of imagination process that it would require to imagine that many, many people in our country live with this level of fear and anxiety every single day. Yeah, I guess I'm wondering to what extent does that self-reflective, pro- could that self-reflective process actually enlist more of the American Jewish community into realizing the structural injustices upon which the Jewish community has actually benefited over a long period of time, and whether or not that actually works. Dahlia Lithwick had a great piece a couple of days ago asking, you know, kind of taking her own temperature psychologically of what's in this moment. And she said, I spent two weeks just meditating and feeling guilty about my own privilege. And it turns out that wasn't that helpful, either for me psychologically or for the people who I actually could help in this moment. So I am trying to figure out, like, how does the knowledge that you're both giving us about what you are actually seeing, which I I would suspect is actually invisible to many Jews in the New York area and beyond, how do you actually move from that kind of knowledge to create the kind of catalysts to actually be change agents for a broader Jewish community in this moment? I'll just note on a very anecdotal basis that I've been speaking with my counterparts at Hebrew Free Loan Organizations in other cities, and people have stepped up dramatically to try to make available resources in, they're looking for channels in their personal philanthropy to have an impact on people. And it's because, in part, that you open up the newspaper every day and you see stories about people who are hit the hardest by this. The, the degree to which we can continue to communicate, not you know our brand and, um, and, and try to make sure that our 
organizations survive, although we have a responsibility to do that, but to let people see what's going on every day. I feel like it's very hard not to analogize people's financial situation before the pandemic to a pre-existing condition, which raises the risk of fatality for them, of financial fatality, and, and maybe even actual physical fatality during a time when financial resources become scarce. Exactly as Joanna was saying, you know, people who are stacked up in apartments with multiple people, they, they cannot safely distance themselves from other people who are probably infected. They have to go to work. They're delivering our food. They're driving us around. And they are lucky to have employment in some way, but they're also not doing what we're doing, which is sitting in our living room and staying safely away from other people. So I think that as it becomes clear how many people are on the front lines who aren't in hospitals, but are delivering food and going to work at places where there's still work available, I do think that this will seep into people's consciousness. Now, that doesn't mean that structural inequality is going away. I mean, I am both amazed by and also somewhat put off by how effective the Jewish community has been at mobilizing resources for its institutions. I mean, amazed because it has been a huge and heroic effort at every level, including parts of the CARE Act that you know, were influenced by people trying to make sure that the nonprofit sector were protected and getting in there and, and arguing for much more generous uh, unemployment benefits than, than we've ever had. All of these advocacy efforts do wind up making a difference, but they land with a disparate impact. And I feel like the degree to which our community is, is prepared and mobilized to take advantage of the loans that are coming through the Small Business Administration is both impressive and also highlights how different we are than, than most other communities. I mean, it feels to me like the public school dilemma in New York City, right? There are only so many spots in really good public schools in New York City. And a lot of those spots are taken up by families, frankly, like mine. My kids have, have been in New York City public schools, and we have tried very hard to get them into the best possible schools, knowing at the same time that there is a huge problem with the distribution of educational resources at top schools in New York City. These are hard problems. I'm wondering what you think about them. A couple days ago, I, I did a conversation with Michael Walzer, and we were talking about the perversity of the terminology of essential and non-essential workers, in, in especially right now, where uh, many of our most essential workers are actually least paid, uh, worst taken care of, but we classify them as essential because we actually depend on them, <laughs> but we don't take care of them. Um, the, the thing that I'm, that I'm having a hard time with, though, is just it's very hard uh, to identify with your description of the problem and then figure out how to engage as broad a community as possible. Because anytime you want to enlist people in a problem like this, first of all, any type of change is going to involve serious loss. So you gave one example. Are you willing to, for your own purposes, give up the good spot in the elite public schools in, in New York City in order for someone else who to take it who may also be affluent and privileged, um, right? You have no guarantee that by doing so, uh, you're going to get what you want. But also, uh, the more that you start talking about structural poverty and structural injustice, the more it sounds to half of America like what you're doing is leveraging someone else's poverty for the purposes of partisan gain. 
And this is true in the Jewish community as well, right? There's no Jewish organizations can say, I'm going to leave the SBA money on the table because the nonprofit organizations in Joanna's neighborhood um, who actually need them or the small businesses should have access to them because then you've left it on the table. How do you create collective mobilization for a purpose like this that doesn't wind up being savaged by, by being characterized as partisan in nature? I think the best tool we have actually is like our own Torah, right? Like I always feel like those of us who are like do-gooders in the world, it's like, we're like, yes, I'm such a good person, but like, oh my God, I want my Uber ride to be $7 and not $15, right? We are contributing to the very problems that we think are so unacceptable in society. And something that has heartened me is like looking at conversations on Facebook and being in conversation with family members and friends where we're thinking much more acutely about the ethical implications of, you know, Amazon Prime or what it means to ask a delivery worker to come and deliver, but we want them to, you know, be able to have a job, but we don't want them to have to come out and endanger their lives or the lives of their families. I think we need to create the kinds of conversations where these questions are live. Because actually, if people in power, which is us, weren't contributing to the systems of inequity, the systems wouldn't exist, right? And so each one of us has a carbon footprint of the ways in which we contribute to the situation that we're now in. And ultimately, we need to reckon with that. Is that a national plan? No, but it has to start with the individual because that's the way to cleanse it potentially of the partisan nature of these conversations, right? What does it mean to participate in a system where people have no safety net, right? What does it mean to support that system? So let me, um, you asked for some Torah, so let me bring in one text for us to consider together in the short time we have left. There's a, a Talmudic piece in Ketubo 67b, and it's, it's prompted by a discussion of dowries and what is supposed to be put into the kind of the kitty as part of a wedding. As a result of that, the rabbis uh, surface the case of an orphan in the community, and what is the obligation of a community to provide for an orphan boys and orphan girls as the money they take into their new wedding? And that prompts an incredible question. The rabbis say as follows, quoting um, from the Bible about providing for the poor, that for which um, should be sufficient, you are commanded to support a pauper, a poor person, but not commanded to make him wealthy. However, the text goes on from the Bible that the rabbis quote to say that which he is deficient, that's what's deficient for him. That is pointing out that it's specific to the individual's needs. And then cites a whole series of examples, for instance, to providing a horse for such a person or a slave to run in front of such a person, suggesting that if a person had started at a place of tremendous wealth and lost that wealth, what is sufficient for that person to be able to recover not just their financial needs, but but really their dignity is not determined by some standard. It, it, it's a kind of a mockery of the notion of the poverty line. There's no objective poverty line, there is a subjective poverty line, that threshold past which people feel that they are debased or degraded. And and it's kind of implied by the continuation of the Talmudic story for about a page of a whole series of examples of sages themselves who succeed or fail 
at providing for the material needs of poor people because they are thinking through the prism of what they think poor people need as opposed to thinking through the prism of what an individual on the other end needs. So I, I'm curious how, how you both read this text, what jumps out for you from it, but also whether, um, whether and how the rabbi's implied approach to addressing poverty is actually plausible on a public policy level. Is there a version of this that enables a society to say, how can we provide for everybody what they think that they need, as opposed to a blanket, I'm going to send $1,200 check out to every American, because that's what I've decided I can afford, and that's what everybody can need. Well, I, I want to jump backwards a little bit, Yehuda. The first Brita on the page says, actually, here's what you need to provide for an orphan getting married. You need to give that person a house. You need to fill that house with a bed and housewares, and you need to make sure that they have a spouse. That is, provide for a wedding um, for that person. And it's kind of an amazing set of things to choose. You, you want to set this person up essentially with a home. This person needs physical protection. It can't just be a bare-walled place. They need something in there that they can make their home um, comfortable and, and, and cook things with and, and have a bed to sleep in. And of course, people, <laughs> they, need, they need companionship and love in that home. And that's what people lack is a home very often. And that's true today as much as it was in Talmudic times. We do get further on into the psychological needs as well as the physical needs. But I really quite like the presentation at the very beginning that what you need most is you need a home and, and, and all the things that constitute a home. I love these stories, actually, and I think about them all the time. And sometimes when I'm encountering a particular statute that comes from the government, let's say from Head Start or from the city of New York in their anti-poverty programs, I sometimes just think to myself, plump chicken. You know, like, because that's one of the examples that comes later in the page. Like, what do you feed a person um, who's poor? Like, do you give them like the fanciest food in the world? Or do you just give them, as it says later in the page, like rice and lentils or something like that? And first of all, what I want to say about this text is that it gives me a lot of solace to think that our community has been grappling with these questions before this moment in time. And in response, Yehuda, to your question, that doesn't feel partisan to me. That just feels like that's the benefit that we have as Jewishly engaged people. Like we get to be part of a conversation that has been grappling with this for, you know, 2000 years or, or more. What I think is so interesting about those texts is the interplay between the people in authority, the rabbis, let's say, deciding what someone needs who's vulnerable and the vulnerable themselves speaking up for what they need. And it sort of feels like where the texts leave us is that it has to be some combination of both, right? Like the rabbis seem to make some questionable decisions about giving people very, very fancy food. And, you know, then the, the people who are the quote unquote subjects make some questionable decisions by demanding some items that don't feel sustainable. We have taken the tack as a society that people in places of power have the right and the capacity to determine what other people need. Often what we have said is a determination de facto is actually they need nothing, right? It's actually fine that most Americans are one health crisis away from poverty. Like collectively, we've decided that's okay. 
right? And so there's a huge corrective action around bringing the people who are most affected by these kinds of policies into an active conversation about what sustainability looks like. And that requires a huge brain shift, I think, for those of us who see ourselves as activists and leaders in this work. But it's right there on the page. Without an active conversation, we're going to make very silly decisions. I just want to point out there's a hugely anarchic story on the middle of uh, the DAF. A guy comes to Rava and Rava says, well, what do you need? And the guy says, well, I need, I need the, you know, a four course meal from a five-star restaurant. And Rava says, look, aren't you worried about the fact that's going to drain the public's treasury? And the guy says, you know, honestly, I don't, I don't survive off of the public. I survive off of what God gives me. The public is just their agent to give it to me. And then Rava's sister, who he hasn't seen in 13 years, shows up with a you know, four-course meal from a five-star restaurant, thereby schooling the, the Rosh Yeshiva and introducing into the conversation, I think, a completely unrealistic, unworkable, and yet very deep values message about the fact that it is very hard for people who are in charge of a community to be satisfied with a set of rational decisions about resource allocation if you are not also considering the fact that public policy is an extremely blunt instrument. There's a passage in another part of the Gemara about the first verse in Psalm 41, which is happy is the person who considers the poor. And the rabbi said, considers the poor, what don't you mean gives to the poor? And so there's a whole conversation there about what does considering the poor mean? And one answer is for sure considering how best to meet the needs of this poor person in front of you, which is a very retail sort of demand and not possible through public policy. And I think as religious people, we need to live in the tension between good public policy and the fact that there are human beings in front of us all the time. You know, what's also very powerful about this text is that we're inclined to read it through the perspective of the question of what does the poor person need and what does the poor person want, right? And that dichotomy between needs and wants. But I think since these are texts written by rabbis, primarily for rabbis, I think the primary target of the text are the sages themselves and their own questions about needs and wants. Because if you position the sages as the distributors or the managers of the public charity and public trust, then it's entirely just a kind of psychological question of does this person need that much or are we withholding it from them? But maybe part of the message here also is, you know, giving the one example of the the man who comes before one of the rabbis and says, I need to eat this fancy food. And the rabbi says, well, can't you subsist on the lentils that I eat? Uh, and the person dies because it turns out he can't. I'm not sure about the the theory of, uh, of food in, the, in that text. But the point is that I think we're supposed to hear that the rabbi who can afford the fancy food can also subsist on lentils. It means that part of what's supposed to happen from this text also is to recognize that it's not just a negotiation on behalf of the poor, what do they need and what do they want, but also our willingness, those of us with the affluence and privilege to say, I also could afford the fancy food and I decide not to. And I think that there's a lot there for a Jewish community in this moment that is both anxious about its own essential existential survival for its institutions, but is also fundamentally affluent 
to do a little bit of a reconsideration of what do we actually need for our institutions and in what ways can the Jewish community serve uh, as a larger moral beacon uh, with respect to those uh, with real needs. I'll conclude with, uh, I I read this uh, piece that maybe both of you saw, and if not, I recommend by Derek Thompson in The Atlantic two weeks ago, who pointed out by analogy to the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, that the agenda of progressive politics, especially around poverty, got set back years by the Spanish flu pandemic and what might happen as a result uh, because of the coronavirus. On one hand, I felt very demoralized by it. Uh, On the other hand, I felt like maybe this isn't the right frame. Maybe the whole point right now is to figure out less how to advance, quote unquote, a progressive political agenda and more figure out how do we disconnect poverty itself from being thought of as a progressive political agenda, if we could actually figure out how to make it a moral agenda that sits at the heart of what it means for us as Jews and Americans to be Jews and Americans, uh, we might have a much longer, a more effective strategy to be able to deal with these current and future crises. I would say that's why, that's why David and I do the work that we do in the way that we do it, right? We believe that there is a moral imperative that exists outside of politics and that our titles as rabbis um, affirms that um, implicitly and explicitly in some ways. I'll just add that we are working in Jewish community organizations that um, serve the Jewish community and also serve beyond the Jewish community because we think that is a message that needs to be heard by people who are looking at Jewish community institutions, and frankly, who are also looking at rabbis and what they do and what it means for us to live and lead with Jewish values in the 21st century. Well, thank you for listening to our show and special thanks to Rabbi Joanna Samuels and Rabbi David Rosen. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced and edited this week by David Svig Hallman. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman with music courtesy of so-called. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online, shalomhartman.org. And you can also write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, and anywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week. Stay safe and healthy. And thanks for listening.